0: This is another T-Rex Talk podcast edition, and once again, we are tackling the topic of building community. In the last, uh, actually two weeks ago, we talked about why communities need to have backbone. They need to have a solid, central, unmoving, unchanging thing that holds people together so that you can actually have unity and commonality of purpose uh, community needs that, and then because the topic of building communities is so big uh, and so expansive, we're talking about it in uh, little chunks. I feel like we're just kind of nibbling around the edges. So today, talking about community, uh, I'm going to talk about a couple of different ways, three different ways that communities have started in the past, in very different circumstances. And I'm also using the term community uh, rather loosely because the first community that I'm talking about is actually the Byzantine. Empire. Yes, we're talking about Constantine, Constantine I, Constantine the Great, whatever you call him. uh, There is a man named Constantine who found himself in more or less control of the Roman Empire, the entire Roman Empire in the early 300s, which, if you know your history, is also the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire declines and falls uh, several times, but this is kind of the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. And yet... I think that it's very interesting to see what it is that uh, that Constantine actually does. Because in many ways, he saves the Roman Empire, or the best parts of the Roman Empire. I think that's the best way to put it. He inherits a thing that has declined and has fallen, is completely crumbling. The money supply, well, the currency itself has been completely debased. Uh, the empire is essentially bankrupt The military is overstretched. They're they're losing their frontiers. There's a lot of infighting. The Tetrarchs are the actual rulers of Rome, and they're fighting amongst themselves. Everything is crumbling. The people themselves uh, have been infantilized and are totally dependent upon the government for bread and circuses. Like All all of the stuff that you can imagine is all sort of coming to a head at this point. And what Constantine does is essentially he is very quick to abandon all of the things that are broken and rally the existing infrastructure around um, a fairly different direction, not entirely different, but he gets rid of everything that, uh, that is useless. So the currency, which is completely debased, uh, he just abandons it and he issues, he issues new currency that's actually gold. He kept the army, but he completely restructured uh, the military and managed to defend those frontiers, actually win some military victories. And most importantly, and what Constantine is probably most known for, is that he ended the persecution of Christians. His predecessor was Diocletian. Diocletian had launched the most... Uh, heavy-handed persecution of Christians uh, in Roman history. The way that he was treating individual Christians uh, is just unthinkable, and his soldiers were wiping out tens of thousands of Christians at a time when they found them in town. So very heavy-handed persecution, which had a very negative effect, obviously, on the Christians themselves, but it actually had a very negative effect on the entire empire. The way that the empire was treating some of its most useful and helpful and constructive citizens was very damaging to the empire and was very damaging to the morale of the other people even the other people who were happy to see the christians go were supporting a very large uh, and tyrannical and problematic military regime that ended up creating a bunch of infighting amongst the tech rocks and it was just again everything was kind of fallen apart Constantine ended that persecution with the Edict of Milan, where he basically says that uh, there will be no more persecution of Christians. He also outlaws the persecution of certain other religious groups, but even that is not enough to save him from... Modern scholars saying that he's basically Donald Trump in a toga, making the Roman Empire a Christian nation, trying to pretend like it's going to get great again or something like that. Um, He is hated by all secular scholars for becoming a Christian and making the country a Christian. And these are apparently uh, the only thing that you're not allowed to do as a Caesar, as an Augustus. But what's actually one of the most important things that he does is after abandoning Uh, The persecution of Christians after he abandons the totally inflated currency, after he abandons uh, the Tetrarchs and he abandons some of the militarized uh, senators and some of the uh, politicized military commanders. He also abandons Rome herself, at least the city. He moves the capital of Rome eastward to the city of Byzantium, which he then names after himself. Uh, He names it Constantinople, of course. And this is actually incredibly uh, important for what happens next. Because what happens next is everything that was too damaged to survive doesn't survive. And everything that Constantine has rallied around and reinforced does survive. And the Eastern Empire lasts for a thousand years, which is actually kind of mind-boggling to me. If you look at the great empires of the past, you know, Roman, Greek, When you see what people like Alexander the Great did, or you look at Babylon, or you look at the Persian Empire, these empires are massive, they grow very quickly, and then they're gone also very quickly. An empire that lasts for a thousand years, a country that lasts for a thousand years is rare enough. Something that Constantine did made it possible for the work of Rome, which lasted for hundreds of years to actually go on fortified by the Christian church and fortified by cultural advances— They were actually able to last for a thousand years, even though they were in a very interesting spot, geopolitically speaking. And Rome fell, as Rome did uh, many times. The decline and fall of Rome is a very interesting thing to read about. Gibbon is not my favorite historian on the topic, but he certainly documents the many falls of Rome, the many times that Rome was sacked, the many times that Rome basically fell apart from the inside. And even a couple of centuries later, after Constantine, Rome, the city, is in a bad way. The Western Roman Empire is no more. And his capital city, former capital city, is in no great shape at all. It's so bad that there's a young monk named Benedict, and Benedict just leaves Rome. He decides that there's nothing productive that he can do inside of that city, that city that calls itself the center or the flower of Western civilization. He decides he can't do anything productive there, and he leaves. And after spending a little bit of time as a hermit in a cave, thinking and praying about what would be productive, he goes out and he starts building monasteries, and he establishes the the rules of Benedict, which are a ways for monks to live centered around not just uh, not just prayer, not just spiritual things, but also physical things like work. And what he builds is incredibly powerful and he's in a, a very different position than Constantine. He's not a man that has any authority. He's not a man that has any power, he's not a man that has any uh, resources that he can mass together. He goes out and he builds basically from scratch. Deliberately, he leaves the city where there is, ostensibly, stuff worth preserving. He goes out into the countryside where there is nothing, and he begins building from nothing. The monasteries that he builds begin to attract monks, but what's really important about these monasteries is not just their uh, spiritual focus. It is the fact that his monasteries become the seeds of cities— These bustling, powerful, stable, orderly, healthy towns spring up around the monasteries that he builds because his influence isn't just the monks themselves. His emphasis on work and community involvement make his monasteries the framework that towns can build around. These monasteries that he builds are not just places where uh, the monks are cloistered away from the common folk. These monasteries are the libraries, the marketplaces, the meeting halls, the research centers, the, the engines of innovation and invention that can make it possible for towns to form around them. People wanted to be near these monasteries, even if they didn't want to be monks. They wanted to be part of the order. They wanted to be part of the cultural advancement that was happening around those monasteries. They wanted to be a part of the work that the monks were doing, even if they uh, didn't want to be monks themselves for various reasons. And one of the reasons that I'm talking about Benedict, even though I think he's a great example of this, is there's a book by Rod Dreher called The Benedict Option. And he is basically saying to Americans, and American Christians more specifically, now is the time for you to consider doing what Benedict has done. It's time to go and build in the countryside. It's time to just kind of withdraw from systems that are not worth saving. If you're not Constantine the I and you can't just replace the broken systems, just pull out of the systems and go build your own thing. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that book uh, kind of towards the conclusion of this, but it's, it's interesting that uh, this conversation is happening in the United States right now. But the fruit of Benedict's labors inside of Western Europe is phenomenal. And it's it's hard to actually classify everything, all the levels of influence that he had, but it probably cannot be understated. And it's interesting that this one monk who had nothing, who left Rome, the very center of the church, the very center of everything, uh, that's what uh, the people who lived in Rome thought, he actually had a far greater effect and probably saved uh, Italy and oh, probably a lot of Europe, but he definitely saved Italy from the total decadence and collapse um, that Rome kept having over and over and over again. I think that he was far more instrumental in that than any of the really important and powerful people of the time inside of Rome that were trying to make these very high-level top-down uh, sort of cultural decisions. The work of people going out into the countryside and building stuff from the bottom up, and building culture and building families, building communities, uh, is really what enabled the Western Europe, which is just in a complete shambles at this point, to grow up to the point that it is economically powerful, even more powerful than that Eastern Empire, which, I remind you, at this point in time, is still going. It's, it's still ticking along very happily and will do so for, again, a thousand years, which is just an amazingly long amount of time. And Benedict doesn't just save the Italian countryside uh, from from being in a shambles. He really sets the tone for the way that communities are built and the way that cultural and civilization advancement happens inside of Western Europe. So if we flash forward a couple of hundred years, we get to a guy named Boniface. Boniface is a guy who, like Benedict, is born in a city in a relatively peaceful place in England— uh, Anglo-Saxon, England, and he leaves so that he can be a missionary in Germany. Germany is a very wild, uh, terrifying place. Rome was not able to conquer Germany. Uh, the Western Empire, what's left of it, the bits and pieces of it have not been able to conquer Germany. All the crazy tribes out there, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the other Goths, they're all just pretty much ungovernable, untamable, unreachable, and very, very fierce. And Boniface just goes out there. And the first thing that he does uh, in recorded history—I'm sure he did other other stuff— the first thing that he does is go out, interact with some of the tribes, find out about their religion, and then go to the biggest, most important, most mystical oak tree that they used to worship Thor, who at the time was a very serious god, not somebody played by an Australian, but a very serious god that people really worshipped. And he chopped that tree down. They told him that if he chopped the tree down, he would be killed by Thor— And he chopped the tree down anyway and used the wood to build a church. This is a very symbolic thing that people talk about uh, in hindsight as being like not that big a deal, just purely a publicity stunt kind of thing. I don't believe that it was a publicity stunt. That is not a symbolic thing for people who actually positively believe in the lightning powers of Thor and actually positively believe that Christ uh, will support building a church and that he will save the people who are around it. These are people who are not doing publicity stunt stuff. These are, these are two groups of people who have actual serious religious faith. And this kind of clash between those religious faiths is fascinating. There's also modern scholars who point out that, hey, Germany wasn't in total uh, tribal warfare nonsense. It wasn't just one guy in funny monk robes chopping down a tree while a bunch of people who look like uh, How to Train Your Dragon cosplayers watch with their giant axes... It was a little more civilized and a little more complicated. It's true that the Franks were taking over Germany. They had built castles nearby. There were military campaigns. So people say Boniface had a lot of backup. He wasn't in a lot of danger. Uh, I don't know if that's really the case because the Franks continued to lose a whole bunch of military battles against the Germans for a long time after Boniface was dead. Charles Martel himself got defeated in Germany several times. So I think that what Boniface did took a lot of guts. And then after he built that church out of oak, he started building monasteries out of stone. And he started following this, this pattern, this, this way of doing things that, uh, that Benedict had started. You build these centers of not just religious thought, but also actual physical work, actual cultural involvement. And families show up. They come along and they start being a part of the work. They don't necessarily join the monastery and become monks. They become a part of the agricultural work. They become a part of the digging. They become a part of the tilling. They, be, they become part of cutting down the forest and turning it into farmland. They become part of building the houses. They become a part of building those communities and those towns. And Boniface's uh, monasteries appear to be much more fortified monasteries than some of the ones that were being built in uh, slightly safer areas. I forgot to mention that Benedict's first monastery that he built was actually destroyed by the Lombards, who were uh, Germans. Lombard is actually Old German for long beard. So maybe they did look like the uh, How to Train Your Dragon cosplayers after all. And so Boniface built these monasteries out of stone and in a much more sort of fortified way so that... He could defend the people who came uh, to work around the monastery. They had some physical protection. Again, these are not military outposts. They are kind of everything outposts. They're kind of civilization outposts. So the people can come and work on the outside. And then if the barbarians come, if they need physical defense, they have this big stone building that they can come inside and be safe inside. They can actually fight from it. But the rest of the time, they are building. These These are, again, the seeds of towns that become cities. And at this point I should mention the Cistercian monk. So Uh, On Saturday, I was having dinner with a friend of mine, and he was talking about this idea. We were kicking around this. He's a far uh, greater read uh, historian than I am and knows a lot more about this period of history. So pretty much everything I'm saying at this point is now (laughs) his study. He pointed out the Cistercian monks are the best example of this. The Cistercians are a branch of the Benedictine order. The Benedictine order has been going for centuries, and it's kind of evolved and changed, and some of it's gotten stagnant in places, and the Cistercians were an order of monks that said, hey, let's get back to the bare basics. Let's go back to exactly what Benedict wrote and exactly what Benedict did. Get back to exactly Benedict's rule for monks. And the Cistercians are incredibly community-involved-minded monks. There's commerce, engines of innovation. They're inventing crop rotations. They're a massive part of the cultural aspect of civilization. So much is actually coming out of the Cistercian movement. Just music and music notation and medicine. These outposts are the hospitals as well as being the marketplace and being everything else. They're inventing new ways of doing agriculture, new agricultural tools, new ways of doing blacksmithing. And these towns are where you would want to go if you wanted to be at the forefront of anything. If you wanted to be at the forefront and getting this, this new uh, land that is available because you're pushing back the forest, that's where you go. If you wanted to learn the best possible way of doing blacksmithing, the best possible new agricultural technologies, these are the places that you would go. And that makes them sort of the hubs of this cultural and civilizational development that is happening throughout Western Europe. And so thanks to the work of these little decentralized outposts of people working together and building strong communities, you actually see the collapsed Western Roman Empire and the the barbaric wilds that were never actually conquered by the Roman Empire itself. You actually see them coming together and becoming strong, powerful, civilized, economically stable nations. They're not perfect, and they still fight with each other quite a bit, but they actually outpace That Eastern Empire, which is still ticking along, and they actually become very prosperous, and they actually become very advanced in many ways. And with all of that prosperity comes problems. The towns that have been built up around these initial monasteries become massive cities. And the monasteries themselves kind of change. The, the monks are no longer really leading the charge in certain areas. They're, they're no longer using their monasteries and their abbeys of places of cultural integration and combining the spiritual and the physical together. Oftentimes what you see, especially starting in the 1300s and then later, you start to see a trend more towards the monks cloistering themselves away. The monasteries are a way to separate themselves from community, separate themselves from uh, the regular people. You start to see greater distinctions between the clergy and the laity, and they They sort of separate out. And this has a very negative effect both on the laity, but also on the clergy. And you start to see uh, powerful hierarchies within the Catholic Church and uh, giant cathedrals instead of monasteries. I'm not opposed to giant cathedrals, but you start to see coming out of these things uh, the evidence of great wealth and corruption. And the city of Rome starts to look less like it did after being rejuvenated uh, around Benedict's time. You start to see it look more like it did during Diocletian's day. You start to see the decadence and the corruption in Rome once again. And you start to see that throughout basically all of Western Europe. These cycles tend to repeat themselves in different ways, even when there are different religious structures in places. These types of cycles, uh, I think, are hard-coded into the way that people work. So you know that saying, uh, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times or easy times, and then easy times make soft men. This is what you see happening played out over the centuries throughout Europe, and you see some of the greatest fruits of the hardest work of men in this time. But then, as time goes on, and now you're up into the 1400s, you start to see some of those soft times, some of those easy times creating soft men and creating tyrants who are preying upon those soft men, not only in the civil sphere, but also in the religious sphere, also in the the church sphere. And so one of the things that happens in the 1500s is you have a Reformation. You have a Reformation where a lot of the people pull away from the Catholic Church and some of the theological doctrines um, that they believed were in error, and I personally also believe were in error, but they also pull away from some of those systems. And the result is you get these decentralized townships again that are centered around churches, and you get a integration of spiritual life and physical life again. It becomes a focus again inside of, let's just look at Germany. Germany is a place where the growth and power of Germany, economically, militarily, however you want to look at it, comes out of Boniface's monasteries in a gigantic way, in a way that the, the pagan tribes of Germany could never, ever have duplicated. And then you see a tremendous amount of stagnation, Over the next few centuries. But then, out of the Reformation, you see an incredible boost. You see another level of growth on top of what was accomplished by Boniface as the Reformation spurs new inventions, new ideas. Printing presses spread those ideas around. And a lot of these things, I think, are really possible because of the communities of these little townships. The Reformation allowed them to have the sort of decentralization and the sort of legal freedom um, that they needed to do things, but they were still centered around churches, and they were still centered around these, uh, these centers of preaching and teaching. And the Reformation, uh, if you look at guys, particularly guys like Calvin, who came later, he integrates theology and business in a very significant way. So not cloistering religion away in a place where only special people have it, but he spreads it around, makes it accessible to everybody. And the result of that has ramifications that extend far beyond the church or far beyond religious thought or far beyond theology, as it is talked about in books. You actually see that having a massive effect on the way that business is conducted. You see that in the way that countries are governed. You see that in having tremendous effects over all of Europe. So as we look at these cycles uh, repeating, I think that these are are several things that are really worth looking at. And the three men that I talked about, Constantine, Benedict, and Boniface, I think are examples of, I don't want to say that there's no wrong way to do this because there certainly are wrong ways to do this. Diocletian is a great example of that. But you will find yourself personally in situations that are very different from situations that other men are in. Constantine had resources and opportunities that Benedict did not. And so he went about preserving community uh, in a very different way, and it bore tremendous fruit. And then Benedict has far fewer resources, but even though he has fewer resources, in some ways, he has opportunities that allow him to do even more. He builds something, a movement that uh, is able to take Western Europe in a direction that even this stable Eastern Empire is not able to do. So it's really fascinating to study these things and look into um, the way that these things are applied by different people. And Boniface comes along. He also has nothing, but instead of building in nowhere, he goes into hostile territory and is able to build communities and build networks of people that bear tremendous fruit even in hostile territory. And I don't want to go into exactly where I think we are today in the United States, which part of the cycle we're in, um, but I would advise that some of you read uh, the book, The Benedict Option by Rod Reyer. Not everybody, because I will say this about the book. I, I appreciate the book, but in some ways I feel like it's really simple, easy stuff. My parents began homeschooling me when I was uh, very young, and this was uh, a long time ago, and I, they certainly weren't the first people to homeschool. Over the last 30 or 40 years, millions of people have pulled their children out of public schools. Tons of people have left their jobs where they weren't really able to do what was right and pursued smaller Uh, entrepreneurial ventures where they would have more freedom and more ability to build what is important. Uh, Even today, we can see there's movements where people are unplugging from Netflix and they're moving away from the cities. They're wanting to be part of small communities. So in many ways, I would say that the ideas that are in the Benedict Option, for a lot of people, they're not new ideas and they're not really even presented in ways that that cause you to dig real deep in there. I'd actually hope that there was more talking about Benedict the man inside of the Benedict Option. But But Rob Drager does a great job of presenting some of these ideas and presenting some of the situations that we find ourselves in today in... 21st century America, and talking about the ways that we might pull out. But again, there's a lot of people who are already wanting to disconnect themselves from the big, faulty, problematic systems that exist and build smaller, more community based systems. This is not, in many ways, a new idea. And for a lot of folks, this isn't a particularly hard sell. I would say that a much better book to read is uh, Rob Dreyer's next book, which is Live Not by Lies. And I talked about that book in. a previous podcast on on propaganda. I recommend the Benedict option, but if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already have thought about a bunch of that stuff. So it's not necessarily uh, required reading at this point. And if you've listened this far, then maybe you think that this idea of building community or the job of building communities is as interesting as I do. I, I love this topic. It's kind of off topic for T-Rex. It's not directly connected to the gear or the training uh, that we generally cover or the manufacturing or the business side of things that we usually talk about. But this is very much uh, on brand for us, in my opinion. The being more able to protect your family, being able to take more personal responsibility. I think that is very much in line with this. And while it's a very fun topic uh, to talk about, I also feel like i fairly unprepared. A lot of what I'm talking about is highly theoretical. Here in uh, in Hickman County, we're in a very small county, and T-Rex Arms is a company that is just large enough that we are starting to build a lot more relationships in the community just through people that we have hired and just through people that we've gotten to know along the way. And we're starting to build some of those relationships that I, I think are really beneficial for that type of community building. And yet it's still such early days. I really don't feel like we can look back and uh, draw too many really helpful lessons yet. But fortunately, history is full of phenomenal examples of men like Boniface, uh, men like Luther, uh, men like Calvin. These are guys who Uh, history will usually focus on one aspect of their lives. For Boniface, it's the time that he chopped down the tree. For Luther, it's the time that he nailed the 95 theses up on the door of Wittenberg Church. And yet... These guys spent decades of their lives building communities. And those little tiny snapshots, those little tiny instigating moments uh, of their lives are very important. But there's so much else that they actually did. There's so much else that they actually were able to accomplish through the boring everyday work of building those monasteries and just being there for the people that they were working with. Uh, And I think that those are really the important lessons that we should take away or not lose sight of even when we look for those very exciting, flashy moments of chopping down oak trees. And as usual, I really have no idea how to end the podcast because I honestly don't know how many of you listen this far. So I guess I'll see you next week.